All right. Well, good morning, Millington Baptist Church. Great to continue in our series through the fruit of the Spirit. We've made it all the way up to week seven, and week seven is all about the aspect of the fruit, which is the goodness fruit. And so we're very excited to continue our sermon series today. Uh, A definition for the word goodness comes from the the Greek lexicon. It's the word agathosune. Try to say say that five times fast. Agathosune. And that word basically just means true virtue or integrity. True virtue or integrity. It means having an uprightness about your life. It means to uh, have a wholeness about your life. What you see is what you get. You're clear. You're forthright. Your motives are pure. Now, integrity would be very different from reputation, okay? So reputation is what other people think that you are. Integrity is who you really are. Reputation is about what other people think you are. Integrity is who you really are. And I think that the world desperately needs this fruit of goodness and integrity. I was reading a story recently about a guy who lost his wallet. There was a large sum of money inside of the wallet, and some good Samaritan like found the wallet and returned it to the guy. And the story, the article of this story, uh, the author there w- was shocked that someone would return a wallet with all of the money in it. And the guy who got the wallet back was shocked that somebody returned his wallet with all that money still in it. And, and all the commenters on the story on social media were shocked that anybody would return a wallet with all the cash still inside of it. And as I, as I finished up that story, I realized our world is shocked by goodness. Our world is shocked by integrity. Our world is actually shocked by virtue. Now, don't get me wrong. Integrity is not perfection. To live with integrity doesn't mean you're never able to make a mistake. If that were the case, only Jesus would have integrity. Integrity means when you do make a mistake, you're able to take ownership of that mistake. Our English word Integrity has at its root the word integer. You remember your high school math class? What's an integer? An integer is a whole number. That's what integrity is. It's being a whole person. Your life is not compartmentalized into all of these different pieces and parts. Here's what sometimes we do, right? Sometimes we say, well, this is my professional life. This part over here, this is my family life. This part over here, this is my social life. This part over here, this is my spiritual life. And then this part right here, this is my private life, and I'm hoping that nobody finds out about this part of my life, and I'm hoping that nobody sees what I do in this part of my life. I'm terrified, actually, that anybody would see my private life. Friends, this is not integrity. This is not living holistically. This is not living in an integrated fashion. This is not living the way that God has designed us to live. Integrity is not about compartmentalization. Rather, our external behavior is going to match our internal beliefs. That's integrity. I like the way Tim Keller says it. Keller says, someone who's good, their heart is like a clear lake that you can see all the way down to the bottom. That's goodness. That's integrity, in whom there is no guile. That's what we want for our lives. Of course, the opposite of this would be hypocrisy. Uh, the Greek word for hypokrites is, is really a, a term that was used to describe an actor who would wear a mask and play a different part in a play. Jesus was the hardest on people who were hypocrites. Take a look at these scathing words in Matthew chapter 23. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Friends, that's the kind of life that we want to live. We want a life that matches on the inside and on the outside. 
I heard a story about a well-known home builder. This particular home builder was building homes for 40 years. Uh, The man built some of the finest homes year after year after year, and then he came to the end of his career where he had about one month left in his uh, work before he retired, and uh, the owner of the business came to him and said, I want you to build us one more home. He said, I only have a month left before I retire. I don't have time to build this home. The owner said, I know you want to retire. You want to spend time with your grandkids. But if you could just build this one more home for me, I would so appreciate that. And he said, okay. And this builder who normally built homes that were the best of the best of the best, he cut corners. He cut corners that he had never cut in his entire career. He just wanted to get this job done fast. He used products that were not as good. He used cheaper subcontractors that were less quality. Now, on the outside of the house, nobody would really have known that he chose to cut these corners. But on the inside, it was not well done. So he finishes this product, and the owner comes up to him, and he says, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you how much we appreciate you and your 40 years of faithful service to our business. Here are the keys to your new home. We want to thank you for serving us so well. And here's what this man found out that we all need to recognize today. You are all building your own home. Every decision you make Every choice you make, every path you go down, you are building your own home. What kind of house are you building? Dads, what kind of home are you building? Moms, what kind of house are you building? Parents, what kind of house are we building? Teenagers, what kind of house are you building? What kind of home Are you building? Just to drill down a little bit, here's some diagnostic questions just to get us thinking about goodness and integrity. Do you ever lie on your resume to indicate you have more experience than you actually do? Do you ever falsify your expense reports at work? Students, do you ever cheat on an exam to get a better grade? Do you ever exaggerate when you tell stories to make other people like you? Do you gossip and talk bad about other people to make yourself look better? Do you steal your neighbor's Wi-Fi to save $30 a month? (laughs) Do you use your friend's Netflix instead of paying for your own account? Parents, here's a convicting one. Do you ever lie about your children's age to get a discount admission at a theme park? (laughs) Yes, son, I I know you've been shaving for two years, but you're 12 today, okay? You're 12 today. You're getting a happy meal, all right? So (laughs) do you have integrity? What kind of house are you building? Parents, what happens in our home matters more than we could ever imagine. The fastest way to create rebellious children is to claim one thing publicly and to live very differently behind closed doors. That's the topic for today. Goodness. Uh, To dig into this, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. The Gospel of Mark was written by a follower of Jesus named John Mark. He wrote down this Gospel. It's the first Gospel that we have. And in chapter 10, we, we read about an encounter that the Lord Jesus had with an individual that we call the rich young ruler. It's found in multiple Gospels, but we'll look at the the account found in Mark. And here we're going to need to recognize three substantial realities if we want to pursue goodness. Number one, we're going to have to recognize the goodness of God. Two, we're going to have to painfully recognize the lack of goodness in me, if you're willing to go there. And then third, we're going to have to see the good news solution for us all. So before we do that, let's pray. Oh God, help us to understand first how you are good and then also would you 
kindly but gently and firmly. Help us to recognize our own inherent lack of goodness. And then would you give us the hope as we hold fast to the good news in order that we might obtain true goodness and virtue and integrity in our own lives. And we ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen. If you're ready for God's word, Mark chapter 10, say amen. Amen. Millington Baptist Church, if you're ready, say amen. amen. Okay, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, records the story, and it starts like this. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right off the bat, we have here a man on his knees before the Lord of glory, before the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew tells us he was a young man. The Gospel of Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And at first, it looks like a great witnessing opportunity. This guy is actually coming up and asking about eternal life. If this happened to you or me, it might sound like a perfect chance to share the gospel, right? Chance of a lifetime. Great. This person is actually approaching me for the good news. Noah, what was the name of that New Believers website? I mean, this is perfect, right? But when he comes to Jesus, I want you to notice what Jesus does. Because he doesn't use our methods. He doesn't say, hey, come on over for coffee. We'll develop a relationship. Then I'll share with you the good news. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, oh, thank you for asking. All you have to do is say this simple prayer and ask me into your heart. Instead, Jesus gives him what I think is a very unusual type of response. Take a look very carefully at verse 18. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, at first glance, Jesus' response is a bit puzzling. It's a bit confusing for those of us who know the Bible. When you first read this, it almost seems like Jesus is saying that he himself is not good which of course is not true. We know from other passages that Jesus claimed to be the very son of God. He is is perfect. But this is not Jesus saying that he is not good. Rather, this person is not telling Jesus he's good because he knows Jesus or because he believed he was good. Rather, this is an example of meaningless flattery. And so what Jesus is doing here is correcting his rather tragic and superficial misunderstanding of the word good. And he's saying, you shouldn't really just throw around the word good like that. It's not just a flowery greeting you give to a local rabbi. No, to be good actually has real qualitative meaning. And being good is a quality which only God has perfectly. And that's where we must begin. Before we even think about having goodness in our own lives, we must first begin with the definitive example of goodness, who is God himself. Friends, the scripture teaches, the Bible teaches us that our God is a good God. Psalm 106, verse 1 says it well. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. In fact, our English word for God comes from the Germanic word for good. That's because God is the very definition of that which is good. He cannot be less good or more good. No, he is what they call in philosophical circles the highest good or the sunum bonum, the highest good. And so when you're at lunch today, you can just slip in this new philosophical term as you're talking to your friends and family at lunch here, the sunum bonum, the highest good, right? Then you can kind of look like a big shot in front of your friends. And isn't that what we all really want, to look like a big shot in front of our friends? Now, the scripture says that God is the source of all that is good. First John chapter 1 says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now, the thing about God is that he's absolutely consistent with himself. Theologians call this the simplicity of God, which means God cannot be anything other than he is. He cannot be broken down into parts. He is the same all the time in all circumstances. He is always good because it is his very nature to be good. 
So all his laws are good, all his ways are good, all his decrees are good, all his acts are good, all his perfections are good, all his characteristics are good, all his words are good. And this is good because that means you can always trust him because what he says today will be true tomorrow because he is absolutely consistent with himself. Our God is a good God. Now that might seem like some mumbo jumbo philosophy on the screen, but let me tell you, that doctrine has helped me through the most difficult circumstances in my life. Circumstances where I could not see how could God allow this to happen. I have got to, in those moments, hang on like an anchor, like, like that bar on a trolley car, hang on to this attribute that God is good. There's one book that has really helped me by A.W. Tozer. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and each chapter is like a different attribute of God, a different perfection of God. The chapter on the goodness of God is a chapter that I have read in my life over and over and over and over and over, and I keep coming back to it because it's so powerful. Let me just read a brief excerpt. Tozer says this, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy. And his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. And he says this, that God is good is taught or implied on every page of the Bible and must be received as an article of faith, as impregnable as the throne of God. It is the foundation stone for all sound thought about God. Friends, our God is a good God. The psalmist says it well, Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Meaning, if you don't know him, would you develop a relationship with him? Would you look in his word? Would you pray to him and get to know relationally this God? And you will see, too, that he is good. A few weeks ago, our family went on vacation to the Outer Banks in North Carolina, where they founded the infamous now Duck Donuts in Duck, North Carolina. This is a picture of me indulging sinfully and rather gluttonously on vacation on some chocolate-glazed donuts with Oreo toppings. I mean, how indulgent can you? Don't knock it till you try it. Duck Donuts. And as I tried this donut, I said, oh, taste and see that Duck Donuts are good. Friends, in a way... This is what the psalmist is saying. I've experienced him. I know him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Zechariah chapter 9 says, how great is his goodness. God is good to all of his creation. God is good in his expression, even in his common grace towards unbelievers. He causes the rain to shine on the just and the unjust. He is good to all, Psalm 145 says. God is good, especially though, to those of us who are his children by faith in Christ. He is good to his children in prayer. He is good to his children in his provision. He's good to his children in his protection of us. And he is good to us in his plan. God is good. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Would you say that with me? God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Now, one more time, say it like you mean it. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Our God is a good God. That leads us to movement number two. There's a big problem. We are not good. There is a lack of goodness in me. 
Jesus says to this young man, no no one is good but God alone. This is the testimony of the whole Bible. Paul says in Romans chapter three, there is none who do good, no, not one. Romans chapter seven, Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. See, the Bible teaches a hard pill to swallow here that we are not good, that, that we are fallen into sin and we enter this world in a fallen capacity and And we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, that this is a fallen world and we are not good. If you've ever seen that show, Stranger Things, sin is like the tentacles that go everywhere. Sin has infected this entire creation. It has infected every organization, every nation, every individual heart is infected by the tentacles of sin which spread all over this world most explicitly right into the human heart. Back to Mark chapter 10. When Jesus says no one is good but God alone, this is Jesus' attempt to get this man to look inside of his own heart. But sadly, this reality appears, at least at first, to go right over this guy's head. After all, look at the man's original question. Remember what it was? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I wonder if anybody noticed there's there's a major problem embedded inside of his question. What, What is his assumption here? His assumption is that he can do some good to earn eternal life. In other words, he wants to be assured that his goodness will pay off with eternal wages. So he comes to Jesus, this famous rabbi, to make sure that he's got it all done, that all his boxes are checked to earn heaven all by himself. This is a textbook works-based mentality. He is depending on himself. And with this kind of self-righteous attitude, frankly, there's not much that Jesus can do with this man Because Jesus is a savior. See, Jesus is not primarily a moral leader. Jesus didn't primarily come to be a good teacher, though he was a very good teacher. Primarily, though, Jesus said, I come to seek and to save that which is lost. Primarily, Jesus is a savior. But what good is a savior to someone who doesn't think that they need any saving? So Jesus responds in a very interesting way in verse 19. Take a look at Jesus' words Jesus says, you you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Now, at this point, he has listed six out of the ten commandments. And you might be confused, as I am confused, when I read this kind of passage, thinking, what in the world? Why would Jesus give this man six of the ten commandments? The man wants to know how to get eternal life. Doesn't Jesus know that nobody gets eternal life by keeping the commandments? Isn't Jesus aware that we cannot actually keep the law? Doesn't doesn't Jesus know the gospel? Hasn't Jesus ever read the book of Romans, Galatians, anything? What are you doing here, Jesus? Of course, I'm kind of joking, but why does he tell him the law? The reason, friends, is very important. And it's an important principle that we need to take on as we share the gospel with others as well to prepare the heart for grace. And it's this principle that many people have forgotten. The important key here might actually change the way you share the good news. Jesus is sharing with him the law because the law is a mirror. Because the law is a mirror to show us what we look like. In James chapter 1, it says that God's word is like a mirror. That's why the law was given. Galatians chapter three says, don't you know the purpose of the law? The law was there as a tutor, as a pedagogue to lead you to see your need, to lead you to Christ. 
The purpose of the law is to show us our sin, to show us our need for a Savior. This is what Psalm 19 says. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. See, it's very important that for people to understand the good news, they first must see their need for the good news. Without the bad news, the good news doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'll try to illustrate it with you. Let's say if I come into church today and I begin talking with you and I say, hey, brother, or hey, sister, I got some great news for you. Somebody has just paid your speeding fine that was due in the amount of $1,000. Isn't that awesome? Congratulations. Maybe you'd look back at me and go, what are you talking about? I don't have a speeding fine. That's not true for me. There's no good news for me in that. I'm not guilty. In fact, you telling me that somebody else paid my fine is kind of offensive to me. I'm not aware that I broke any law or have any fine. Maybe you'd be a little taken aback by that. Take two. What if I came up to you a little differently? And I said, hey, brother, hey, sister, can I share something with you? Listen, on your way to church today, you were, you were kind of late and, and you were driving a little faster and there were some hidden cameras and the law clocked you going 55 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone. Furthermore, before you went through that area, there were five clear signs pointing out that law to you. And what's worse is you were in the middle of a construction zone, and so all the fines are doubled in that area, and the law clearly demands that you're going to be punished for that, and so there's a $1,000 fine. You need to pay that immediately. Now how do you feel? Now that you understand your need, now all of a sudden a feeling of gratitude might enter your heart. Now, what's changed between the first scenario and the second scenario? You still broke the same law. Someone still paid your fine. The only difference is now you saw your need. This is why the law was given. The law was given not so that we could be made perfect and observe the Torah perfectly. The law was given to help God's people appreciate their own need for a Savior. It was there to be a mirror, to expose the sin in their heart that was already there. In the same way, friends, if you approach someone who doesn't recognize themselves as a sinner and you tell them about the good news of Christ, hey, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for your sins, that message will sound like foolishness to them. But if you first take them to open up God's perfect law, as Jesus does here with this man, like a mirror, and show them exactly how they've transgressed God's law and how they're personally accountable to God, now they can see their need and now they have a chance to open up their hearts for salvation. This is what Jesus is doing for this man. Jesus is a good doctor. Jesus is a good physician. And just like any good doctor, you're going to look at your patient and you're going to diagnose the problem and you're going to explain to them what's wrong and you're going to explain to them the medicine they need or the surgery that they need. And though it may be painful and difficult and maybe expensive for them to do this, they're going to see that they really need to take your advice. Why? For healing. And Jesus is a healer. He's a physician. And he wants to bring healing to our souls. But first he brings the diagnostic, first he brings the x-ray, first he brings the CAT scan so that we might see that there's a problem and that we might run to him as our savior. Now, this man's response to Jesus' x-ray, his diagnostic, his MRI is not, not what you would, might expect. So brace yourself. Take a look at what he says in verse 20. This young man, this rich young ruler says this, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now that's pretty astonishing. Oh, yeah, I've kept all of that. I, I've never told a lie. I've never stole one thing in my life, even if it was small. I have always honored my mother and father in everything. I have kept the entire... Real talk, this guy's deluded. This guy has no self-awareness. 
This guy is totally unclear about his own heart. He's very self-righteous. Notice his emphasis on his own works. He says, I have kept. This man believes he's actually kept the whole law, all 613 commandments. Now, as incredibly self-righteous as this sounds, I have found as a pastor, this is a really common response in our day. This is very common. You ask the average person if they're going to heaven, they say, yeah. You say, why? They say, because I'm a pretty good person. Go to the average funeral. You'll see everybody thinks everybody's going to heaven. What happens is people compare themselves to others and they think, well, I never killed anybody. The standard isn't, I've never killed anybody. The standard is, have you kept God's perfect law and standard throughout your entire life? That's the standard. And he judges us by his own good and perfect standard. Now, maybe you're here today and you kind of struggle with this because our culture really struggles with the doctrine of original sin. Our, our culture just like really resists this idea that we're not inherently good and we're not all you know, wonderful snowflakes and there's never been another person like us in the history of man. Like, we get a steady diet of this in our educational system and it's hard for us to really stomach the idea, we're not good, you sure we're not good? My mom told me I was good. <laughs> a couple weeks ago on vacation, I read this book by Jonathan Edwards. It's a treatise called The Nature of True Virtue. So I'm sitting on the beach with this big old book. My whole family's making fun of me. Like, really? This is what you brought to the beach? This is your light reading? Very dense, very philosophical. Edwards, he's just amazing. He really helped me understand something about two kinds of virtues. He says there's two kinds of virtues. There's common virtue and true virtue. True virtue is what Jesus had. He always did those things which pleased his father. He always obeyed at the heart level. That's true virtue. But common virtue is when people do the right thing on the outside, but the problem is when people are doing it, they're not necessarily doing it for reasons that are in any way godly or God-glorifying. Actually, Edward says they're doing the right things but for the wrong reason. I'll just give you one example, the example of honesty. Some people are honest, but they're honest out of fear. They're honest out of fear, Edward says, which is the same root as many of our sins, because it pays to be honest. If I'm honest, then I won't have to pay the price of being what? Dishonest. And there's a lot of prices for dishonesty in our society, right? Like dishonesty could cost you your job. Dishonesty could cost you a relationship. Dishonesty, if you are you know, in a court of law, and you could be guilty of perjury. You could go to jail. And so people are sometimes honest out of fear of those consequences, and they say, I wanna be honest because it'll make my life go better if I'm honest. That's inherently self focused. Edward says that's, that's common virtue. That's private virtue. It's only taken into account yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. Common virtue is like a really good thing. In fact, it's one of the reasons why this world is generally safe and livable. We thank God for common virtue. But Edward says the reason it's not pleasing to the Lord is because it's still inherently self-centered, self-focused. So some people are honest out of fear. Edward says some people are honest out of self-righteousness. I'm honest. Why? Because I don't want to be like those people those dishonest people over there. So sometimes it's pride that makes us honest. And this kind of blew my mind as I'm reading through this, tough reading. And here's, here's the problem with all this. Edward says, if your goodness is still operating out of a self-centeredness and fear and pride, that self-focus, if that's at the bottom of your heart, if that's what really drives you to behave the way that you behave, then it's only a matter of time till when your back is up against the wall, and it will be, there's nothing on that day that will keep your self-centeredness from taking you down a path of deep sin. 
And that's why often common virtue is just temporary. That's why, when you, that's why sometimes you see someone you thought was like a really good person, a really virtuous person, you thought they had integrity, that's why you see them go off the rails. And you're like, what happened? What happened was their goodness was rotten at the root. See, this is common virtue. This is why Isaiah the prophet says, all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even your motivations need to be brought in repentance before God. It's superficial. It's external. So let's go back to Mark chapter 10. The text says something amazing to me here. As Jesus goes a little deeper with this guy, deeper into his own issues, verse 21 uh, reads like this. It says, Jesus looked at him and, and loved him. If you could go to the next slide, if you would. <clears throat> yeah. There we go. One thing you lack, perfect, thank you, sorry, my bad. One thing you lack, he said, notice the word lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Now, first of all, I just want you to notice a few things. First of all, notice the word lack. That's a very interesting choice of words. This is a rich man. From his perspective, he did not lack anything. His money kept him from lack. It brought him anything he wanted, respect, power, prestige, material possessions. But Jesus says, I know you don't see this, brother. There's something you lack. There's something your money cannot buy. Your money cannot buy you goodness. Your money cannot buy you eternal life. We have to understand what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not setting down a universal, hard and fast rule that for anybody to enter into his kingdom, they have to divest themselves of all private property and live in a monastery or take an oath of poverty. That's not what Jesus is doing. Remember the context. Jesus is dealing with this one particular man, and he's saying, you, this one man, one thing you lack. It's very specific. So Jesus says, okay, you think you've kept the law. You think you've kept all the commandments? Let's start with number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This man's money was his functional God. Therefore, asking him to sell everything is how Jesus gets to the root of the idol in his heart to show him his sin of greed, to show him his sin of covetousness. See, what he had done is what we all do. We talked about this at the beginning. He compartmentalized his life. He compartmentalized his life, and he said, I've got this area over here with my money and my wealth, and God's not allowed to have access to that particular area in my life. Now, if, I had to enter, if, all, if all I had to do to enter the kingdom of God was to sell all my earthly possessions, I would sell them tomorrow without a second thought. I would give them away. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? But perhaps I say that so easily because I don't have much in terms of earthly possessions. But here's what I need to understand. In some way, shape, or form, this, this guy's a picture of me, and he's a picture of you in some way. We all have traded a relationship with the immortal God for the worship of something in his creation. We've exchanged the glory of God for something else. So maybe for you it's not money. Or real talk, it's Basking Ridge. Maybe for you it is money. Or maybe it's not money. But we all have something that we cling to that we don't want to leave behind and have a relationship with God and have God have access to that private area in your life. If there's anything in my heart that takes first place, i got to let it go. If I'm a believer, this is the thing that threatens my integrity. This is the thing that threatens my goodness. 
And so I got to ask myself, is there anything in my life that's threatening my goodness, my integrity? Here's three diagnostic questions to consider as you're thinking about your own heart. Number one, where am I the most defensive? See, that's a great diagnostic question. If I start getting defensive, I know maybe, maybe there's an idol at play here. Number two, what don't I want anybody else to know? That's a good question. Number three, where do I criticize others? This third one is just for me. I found out I tend to criticize others in the exact areas where I need to grow in my own life. Can anybody relate to that? I'm the only, you leave me hanging up here. I appreciate that, thank you. There's an old phrase, you spot it, you got it. You ever heard of that? So those three questions help me to, to see, is there any part of my life that's become too important, more important than God? If so, that can really wreak havoc on your goodness, on your integrity. And we have to confess those areas to God, and we'll do that in just a moment. First, a little deeper. Here's something else that you need to understand with the human heart. It's not just that we're not good. It's also that we don't believe God is good either. And this goes all the way back to Genesis. As Adam and Eve were in the garden, the enemy came with a lie. The enemy came with, with, a, with a deceit for our forefathers and said, don't you see that God is holding out on you? Don't you see there's something that you want that you deserve that God doesn't want you to have? Don't you see that God is not good? And as they entertained that deception and the lie from the father of lies, they lost their trust in the goodness of God, and now every sin in my heart is now connected to an unbelief about the goodness of God as well. This is the mess that we're in. Okay, back to our text. So Jesus knows what's got a hold of this guy's heart. He challenges him right where it hurts. And what's this man's response? Verse 23. It says, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. The word sad really is not strong enough. It literally means to be downcast, to be shocked, to be devastated, to be totally demoralized. In other words, this rich young man was so attached to his wealth and whatever it brought him in his life, maybe prestige or comfort or pleasure, that he couldn't give it up. And this man who once ran to Jesus now walks away in sorrow. Now think about this. Do you see what's just happened here? The pearl of great price was standing right in front of him. The treasure of all of heaven was right before his face. All that he ever needed or wanted or that would ever satisfy his soul and his heart was right there. And he committed the same sin we all commit. Jeremiah chapter two says you've committed two sins. You've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and you dug out for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns that don't even hold water. And this man walks away. This trade is what the Bible calls utter foolishness. And here's what this young man didn't understand. Though he was rich in this world, by this world's standards, the reality was he was utterly and completely bankrupt. And this is a picture of me. All of us, really. We are all debtors who cannot pay our debts. 
And the reality of this story is that the only person in the universe that could ever get this guy out of debt was standing right in front of him, and he walks away. Which leads us to movement two. We've seen the goodness of God. We've seen the lack of goodness in us. And now we must look at the good news solution for us all. It's against this dark backdrop, friends, that the good news of the gospel shines the brightest. It's no wonder that we call it the good news. I want you to notice a phrase that I read very quickly before, but I don't want you to miss it this second time around. Did you see what it says? It says this rich young ruler, this guy of self-righteousness and pride, this guy without integrity, this guy who is clinging to his wealth. Did you notice Jesus' perspective about him? It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Despite all of the idols in this man's life, Jesus does not laugh at his attempt to justify himself or or sneer at his outrageous claim to have kept the whole law. No, Jesus loves him. This is the heart of our Lord, the heart of compassion and mercy and grace. Oh, the width and the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God in Jesus Christ, the overwhelming, never-ending never-to-be-defeated love of God for his people. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Psalm chapter 23 says, this is the goodness of God. The goodness of God, the goodness of God will follow me. Goodness and mercy will track me down and hunt me down and follow me all the days of my life. This is the hound of heaven loving this man, loving his creation, even in his sin, even in his covetousness, even in his idolatry. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Is it any wonder why we call this the good news. But to receive this news, Jesus is telling him, the only way you can have a relationship with me and come into my kingdom is you got to bring nothing in your hands. You got to come empty. You got to say, as Shane and Shane say in that song, you got to bring your nothing. And you got to become like the Apostle Paul who said about his poverty, I am poor, 2 Corinthians 6, I am poor, yet I am making many rich. I have nothing, yet I possess everything. Why? Because Jesus is the true treasure, the greatest treasure that money can never, can never buy. But we have to come empty. We have to say, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul eye to the fountain, fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Tim Keller says it so well. He says this about goodness. He says, if you're not hiding in Christ, then you're going to have to hide everything else. But if you're hiding in Christ, then you don't have to hide anything else. And here we understand the good news of the gospel and how this creates goodness in us and integrity in God's people. We can now trust God with everything. If I trust in the gospel and if I place my faith in Christ, I don't need to make room for myself. I don't need to be at the center. I don't need to worry about anybody else's approval but God's. This is how God's goodness toward me begins to create real goodness in me. And so the question is, will I come to him for this good news or will I, like this man, walk away? That's the decision that only you can make. But if you embrace this gospel, and for those of us who have, this not only produces redemption, mercy, forgiveness, and grace in your life, this powerful seed of the gospel, and all of this fruit goes back to the seed of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is using the gospel. We, we trust in the gospel, and we, we grow by faith just as we are saved by faith. And this produces goodness in our lives once again. I like to say it this way. The good news produces Good deeds. 
The way you get integrity, the way you get goodness in your life is you realize you can be the same everywhere you go now. If I trust Christ, I can live for him. I can live for an audience of one. I can have integrity. Let me show you this chart again. Here's what happens after I receive the good news, the gospel. Instead of living my life with all of these compartments, I'm now living with Jesus at the very center of my life. And Jesus directs each part of my life, my social life, my professional life, my family life, my... Everything, Jesus drives every aspect of my life now. Friends, our lives have been disintegrated. Our lives have been compartmentalized. Our lives are falling apart. But there is a Savior who, just as he looked at that man that day, looks at you today and loves you and wants to put your life back together again. And he is able and he is mighty to save. Integrity is so important, friends. How are we doing today? I heard a quote that stuck with me like a piece of glass in my brain. It says this, when you have integrity, nothing else matters. And when you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. Leaders, your gifts and talents might get you to the top, but it's your integrity that will keep you at the top. This is God's desire for each of us to live a life of goodness, to live a life of true virtue, to live a life of integrity. This is the fruit that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in you, God's people. Can you imagine a church like that? So how are we doing with the fruit of goodness? Can I ask you the question I asked at the beginning? What kind of house are you building? As we looked at the scripture today and as you listened to this message, was there an area of your life that you've compartmentalized that the Holy Spirit has shown you that has not come under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Is there anywhere today that the Spirit of God is saying to you, brother or sister, one thing you lack. What, what is that area that the Spirit of God is prompting you and convicting you about? If you're not sure, I invite you to pray this simple prayer from Psalm 139. Uh, David prayed it. We, we probably know it well. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive or hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you have the courage to pray that prayer today? Inviting God to do his searching work and let him show you ways that are not pleasing to him or ways that maybe you've wronged another person and you need to go to them and make it right and say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? Would you be willing to pray this prayer? Search me, oh God. I want to live a life of goodness. I want to take a moment and pray together as a congregation, as the worship team comes. Would you just take a moment with me and bow your heads and close your eyes in a moment of quietness before the Lord? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Heavenly Father, all of us today recognize that we have some work to do. Me first. Wherever we are inconsistent, wherever I am compartmentalized, wherever I am being a hypocrite, I invite you now to search my heart. With every head bowed, every eye closed. If you'd be willing to pray that prayer today just between you and God, search me, oh God, would you just slip up your hand as a way of telling God you're giving him this invitation today? Just slip up your hand. Nobody looking around. Just slip up your hand just to say, God, search me. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Forgive us, God. And in a way that only comes by your power, thank you for pursuing us with the gospel. Thank you that your goodness and mercy has tracked us down and that your love never fails, Lord. Though we were not good, after having received the good news, would you now help us to walk with integrity and reflect your holy name and reflect your goodness to a watching world? Lord, we're praying this for the sake of your reputation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.